You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for hunting and shooting in the great outdoors. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You will learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next hunting trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter. Now here's your host, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is Episode 9, Olympic Double Trap Champion, Russell Mark. Some of Russell's achievements include gold in the double trap at the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games and silver in the double trap at the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games. Some of Russell's other achievements include gold in the double trap at the 2006 Melbourne Commonwealth Games and bronze in the double trap at the 2010 Delhi Commonwealth Games, and that's just to name a few. Russell is married to his wife Lauren and lives in Victoria with his three young children. Russell and his wife Lauren also offer personal and corporate shooting coaching. You can find out more at corporateshootingstars.com.au. If you'd like to find out more about Russell, you can go to his personal webpage at russellmark.com.au. Before we get into my interview with Russell Mark, again, guys, don't forget we're on Facebook at the Australian Hunting Podcast. Uh, we're also on Twitter at AH Podcast. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us for any reason, you know, to get, let us know what you think of the podcast, uh, to recommend any people that you might want to come on. You can email us at australianhuntingpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, we're also on iTunes, so you can go on, subscribe to the iTunes page for automatic feeds, and also don't forget to uh, rate us under the podcast and leave a review. That'll get us more exposure. Now, without further ado, let's get into my interview with Olympic champion shooter, Russell Mark. Hi, this is Russell Mark, Olympic gold medalist, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, Russell Mark, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be here. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> Fantastic. So can you uh, tell us, you know, how did you actually get into shooting? Was it something you took up you know, when you were young or was it a family tradition? Yeah, I guess I come from a long line of um, shooters. My grandfather, Bill Mark, was a um, pretty famous shooter up in the Rainbow area in the Mallee. He was actually president, I think, of the Rainbow Gun Club back in the days when they used to shoot live pigeons instead of clay targets. And then my father was a pretty keen clay target shooter. He he went on to become the Australian marketing manager of Winchester. So I, I've got a pretty um, big line of family tradition there. And of course, I've got two brothers that are pretty keen shooters as well. Ah, fantastic. Sounds like yeah, it comes from a long line of family of, of uh, shooters. So how old when you when you first started uh, shooting clay targets? Oh, clay targets probably wasn't until I was 13 or 14, but... Um, you know, I used to go away duck shooting with my family. I've got memories of an eight or nine-year-old being out, stuck out in the middle of a duck swamp being the Labrador instead of the shooter. So I've uh, I've got a, probably more of a tradition, first of all, of being a hunter. However, you know, surprising how things turned around. But I, I can remember going away on plenty of duck shooting trips with my family up past Poon Carey to a property up on the Darling River, which we still go to this day. Right, sounds fantastic. So uh, did you have any formal training when you started shooting or were you just basically a natural? No, I don't know if anyone is entirely natural. I've got no doubt saying that my father was 
the best coach I ever had because he gave me the fundamental basics of how to hold a gun. And I can still remember on our back lawn of our property that we used to have in Ballarat, you know, it was out in the bush, him putting down, it was an ice cream container when I was about probably nine years old and just shooting at it with a shotgun. And, you know, I can still remember all those little things that... Um, I, I was taught by my father back then and I think, you know, that was the cornerstone of what turned out to be a reasonable shooting career because somebody, I guess, spent the time with me early on and, you know, my father, Brian, was a very good coach. Nah, fantastic. Uh, so what's uh, your main uh, competition disciplines? Uh, do you shoot any anything else than double trap or that's, that's oh, your main... Look, I went to four Olympic Games in the Olympic trap competition as well. I mean, I've shot both at, at Olympic level and World Cup level. I've you know, won a few World Cups in Olympic trap and in double trap. Of course, a couple of World Championships and Olympic medals in double trap. But I, I, my uh, traditional sport was down the line or what was commonly called American trap. Um, and I've shot a lot of that and I still hold the Australian record for the long break run, they tell me, for in 1992. I think I shot 1177 in a row and that's still a record day. I don't shoot any of that. I find that I'm still so caught up in the international events in double trap. When I come home from the international events, you sort of want a break and um, years ago I'd go and shoot other disciplines but these days with a young family and everything, I just really haven't got time to cross over and shoot in other events. Uh, is double trap your favourite or...? No, I wouldn't say it was my favourite. I find double trap to be hard work but unfortunately <laughs> for me it was the event that I was best at. Um, I, I really enjoyed my time shooting with Michael Diamond in Olympic trap, uh, or single trap as it's commonly called. I found that to be the most fun, but um, you know, I, I don't know why, but double trap I was always far more competitive at a world level. And you know, I just think in these days when you do have to specialise, um, Michael went one way and just shot Olympic trap and I went the other way and just shot double trap. But I do remember the times with fond memories when I used to shoot both. Speaking of that, I mean, when you go up against the uh, other Aussies, is it sort of, you know, would you say, I mean, obviously everyone's there to win, you know, especially if it's an Olympic event, you know, win win the top, which is gold. But is there always a bit of rivalry amongst not only, I guess, uh, other shooters from other countries, but also your... Uh, your homegrown Aussie folk too. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, we're all trying to ultimately get to the Olympic Games and more times than not only one competitor will get there, there will be the odd occasion when we'll qualify two people. So it can be very cutthroat when there's only one person can go ultimately to the Olympic Games. And Look, I've got no problem saying I've had a lot to do with bringing on some of the younger shooters and it's only a matter of time before the younger guys take over you just can't last forever i'm 47 now and seriously i would i would think only have one more olympic games left in me um saying or i've got no problem saying i'm happy to hand it over to someone who deserves a spot and we've got some young guys coming through that certainly will deserve it no exactly exactly good point um so what does that mean obviously you know uh not only the practice, what does it take, say, both physically but also emotionally to become, say, an Olympic champion at that, at that level? Uh, look, it's a good question. Um, I travelled around the world probably from 1986 to 1990 trying to find out really how to compete. I obviously was good enough to win Australian championships and things like that that put me in the Australian team, but you've got to go to Europe. And I had four really hard seasons in Europe and 
and Northern America competing in a lot of competitions before I finally really broke through and I won the World Cup in Los Angeles in 1991 and you know that was after five seasons on the international circuit. That's the hard part is that you can be a good shot in your own backyard but when you have to win you have to go over to their backyard and I think you know just of recent times to see Cadell Evans win the Tour de France over in a sport that's really dominated by Europeans, I can see sort of what he's had to go through because Cadell was a great Australian cyclist. To, to be truly a legend, he had to go over there and show the Europeans how to win. And I'm certainly not putting myself in his class, but I certainly know what he's had to go through. And uh, that's what any young shooter has to aspire to, is eventually you have to leave the shores of Australia and and go overseas and compete against them, particularly in Europe, in, in particular in Italy. Italy's the mecca of our sport. So really, you reckon, what, what countries would you say you think are the, uh, you know, obviously the cream of, say, uh, target shooting, as you said, the Europeans, are they pretty much up the top? Oh, look, the Italians always throw teams at you that be better than most of the world's number one team. That's how much depth they've got. Italy, number one, I think Spain have always had good shooters, Undoubtedly, the force in shooting is coming through. We're two Asian countries of China and India. Watch out for India. They've proved at Commonwealth level they're already the best country, but at world level, they're probably only two or three years away from winning a packet full of world championships in all disciplines of shooting, not just shotgun shooting. They are really making great inroads into the sport. Wow. So, I mean, how many, I'm not sure if there's obviously a season for, you know, clay target shooting, but how many hours are you normally putting in a week for practice? Or is it, you know, just once you get home, you sort of, you want, you want that relaxation with your family? Is it, does it take quite a lot of your time? Well, the killer is, of course, I'm still competing on the European tour as such. So you're never getting a rest in the Australian season. October, November, December, January are probably big months here. And the European season generally starts the first week of March and goes through until the first week or second week of September, I think it finishes this year. So you don't get too much rest, uh, you know, and I I do really appreciate the times away from competing, but I find these days I'm still competing about nine months of the year, maybe ten months going into the Olympics next year. Um, I wouldn't think I'd get any breaks from from January all the way through to the Olympics in July. But luckily next year the Olympics are reasonably early in the year being in July, so I'll have a few months after that to to recuperate. Yeah, and so that's not during your practice as well. Obviously you come home and constantly practicing or um I'm probably still firing 5 to 600 shots a week um in, in either practice or competitions which may sound a lot. I find if I went and shot too much more than that I do burn out very very quickly, but double trap is revolved around your timing and your technique and everything has to be perfect and you can't just have three weeks off and then turn up at a competition and expect to do well. I still find you need to get to the range a minimum of two to three times a week. Well, how's, how's your uh, shoulder holding up as well for, you know, with all that monk, monk shooting? Yeah, look, um, in 1992 they changed the rules. They went back to 24 grams of shot, which significantly reduced the recoil. Up until then, I did have some shoulder problems. When I first started in the sport, you were allowed 32 grams of shot. 
Then in 1988, they reduced it to 28, and then in 92, they reduced it to 24. I find with 24 gram wage, you're not getting a lot of recall, and it certainly prolonged my career. If it had have stayed at 32 grams, I don't think I would have been in the sport anywhere near as long. Yeah, no, exactly. So other than obviously just, you know, the the regular practice of shooting, is there any hand-eye coordination techniques or practice you're doing or purely just shooting? These days I find that all I need to do is shoot. Uh, when I was younger, I played a lot of, you know, um, hand-eye coordination sports like tennis and table tennis in particular. Uh, you know, I, I've got no problem saying anyone that's good at a hand-to-eye coordination sport would actually end up shooting clay targets pretty well because that's really all it is. The firearm is just really just a tool for you to channel your hand-to-eye skills through. But anyone that's a good opening batsman at cricket, I find, can come along and shoot clay targets pretty readily. I don't find that it's... It's hard to teach people that know how to use their eyes properly. One of our listeners had a question. No, he says, Richard, he just says, uh, is your stance always the same when shooting or does it change depending on where you're shooting from? It changes every shot in my event because the angle of the targets changes after each shot. and You never get two shots in a row. So you do have to change not just your stance, where you're holding the gun. Everything changes from shot to shot and you know that becomes part of the sport that you just do that naturally I don't even think about it I've done it that often no matter where I stand I just stand in the the correct position but it's not the same as the shot before but these days I don't even think about it you know speaking about that is it more instinctual or do you have a set say plan every time you know before you you know take the stand obviously you know get your is it get your stance right or is it just purely instinctual or is there certain things that you do to make sure you know hopefully you're going to be successful in hitting hitting that uh clay target no look that's a very good question and i think um before i mentioned the fact i like the single trap or olympic trap competition better because that is such a natural event you don't know where the target's going to go and you're relying on your hand-to-eye coordination and instinctual swing to the target once you've seen it. My event, a double trap, though, you know exactly what's about to happen and it becomes a very mechanical event, which, you know, I personally probably don't really like. I don't like mechanical shooters, but the best ones in my event are the most mechanical of all, and the ones that succeed are the ones that follow their practice techniques through to competition and the more mechanical you can make yourself, the better you're going to be. As we were talking about before, say, you know, as you're getting older from when you're when you're a young bloke on the scene, do you think it's getting harder on the body or <laughs> I'm finding <laughs> reflex reflex wise, definitely. I mean, reflexes aren't the same as what they once were and uh, you know, I shoot against a lot of 21 to 25-year-old guys out of the U.S. marksmanship unit at Fort Benning. They can shoot them so fast it nearly makes me sick. But I mean, they're not necessarily shooting them any accurately than I am. Uh, but their reflexes are so much better. And uh, that's the part where I find is really just the difference between me on a good day and a bad day is the fact that some of these young guys can hit them quicker. And in the wind, and that, that becomes a little bit of an advantage for them. So, Russell, what would you say if you, someone was getting you know, uh, new into the sport and they'd never sort of picked up a gun before, what, say, you know, a few little bits of advice you'd be able to give them so you know, not only would they enjoy it, but hopefully you know, continue it you know, for the rest of their lives and maybe pass it on to their family members? Oh, first of all, get the right equipment. I mean, I just see too many people turning up at shooting ranges trying to shoot 
the trap disciplines with uh, sporting or field model shotgun and you, you're behind the eight ball to start with. I mean, if you've got the wrong equipment, you won't shoot as many and you won't enjoy it as much. So you've got to obviously speak to somebody with some experience before you go and spend a fortune, get the right advice. And gun clubs are always full of knowledgeable people that are willing to give advice for free and seek out some of the better shooters and just ask them what they sh you should be doing and then learn the techniques, learn the fundamental techniques correctly. If you've got the right equipment with the right techniques, seriously, I reckon I could teach a chimpanzee to shoot. It's not that hard. It's not that, <laughs> There's not too many variables in it, but it's impossible to shoot properly without the correct gun and the correct style. And if you've got those two things going for you, well, you know, the world's your oyster. No, exactly. So I guess we'll, get, we'll go into that equipment. So what brand are you currently shooting and what gauge is best for general clay target shooting or just for yourself and the disciplines that you shoot? Oh, look, I've been sponsored by Beretta virtually all of my international competition career. I've been sponsored from by Beretta since 1986. So I've really only ever shot one brand of gun. I used a Beretta shotgun before I was even sponsored by them. So they've been a fantastic company for me. They offer a great backup service here in Australia. So I've never had any problems recommending people go and look at a Beretta shotgun first because if, you know, they've, probably got the best after sale service here in the country but there's really only one gauge that's widely used around the world it's only a 12 gauge there are in skeet there are competitions for the smaller gauges but nobody uses anything at international level apart from 12 gauge shotguns and that's you know you i've seen people try 20 gauges in certain events but none of them have ever been successful the 12 gauge shotguns for my event they're the only ones and they're pretty much i would say in my career 99.99 percent of the time i've shot against people using under and overs you used to see the odd smattering of semi-automatics but not as reliable and you know virtually nobody has ever tried a side by side so pretty much the same equipment uh, a friend of mine always says you know especially with uh shot gauge anything a 28 or a 20 gauge can do a 12 gauge can do better so yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it, it just uh, the development of the 12-gauge shotgun for competition shooting has got to the point where there's just not, it's not even debatable. There's no debate that that's the best gauge for my event. You, you know, it just throws the best patterning um, loads each time. Yep, so going into that, speaking of loads, uh, what, you said you've got the 24 grams, so what, you know, is there any particular brand that you're using or, you, you know, what, what are you using for loads? Uh, for, for years I used Winchester that were made here in Australia. They were a very good load and they still are. I, I've got no problem saying that they're a good shot shell, but I had the problem with Winchester shot shells made in Australia. You couldn't get them anywhere else in the world, so... In 2000, I swapped um, over to RCM Munition, an Italian brand that is very widely available throughout the world. So I just got sick of having to go to certain competitions and having to try and find a similar load to what the Winchester load was. And these days, it's impossible to carry more than five kilograms of ammunition on an airline. And five kilograms doesn't get me through the first half of the first day's practice for me. So... You know, I need about 25 kilograms of ammunition to, to shoot a proper competition. So RC ammunition for me was available all over the world, and when I swapped to them, it just took another variable out of the equation. 
Yeah, and no, I can imagine that. Actually, that's one thing I didn't think of. How do you go with that when you can't travel on, you know, because I've had to travel before um, down to Melbourne uh, to, to, for, for duck season. And uh, yeah, you're right, you can only carry a certain amount. So do you get people to source your ammunition over there or is it a, a scramble when you're over there to try and get it all? No, look, with that brand, it's nice because it is so widely available throughout the world. It's probably the world's leading competition brand. And um, I'm not saying it's any better or worse than any of the other top brands. I mean, I'm not I'm not silly enough to say that it, I've got an advantage because I'm using them, but it is very consistent. It is very good shot that's loaded in there, and that's what the number one thing you're after is to have very good, hard, round shot. Well, the, the Italians have perfected that a long time ago. But the thing I like the most is sincerely you can get it anywhere, and that, that's what I need. No, exactly. Well, seems like the Italians have got it all sorted over there. <laughs> so, they again, certainly have. It sounds like it. Um, so what about, again, back onto the shotguns. Are you using uh, fixed choke shotguns or screw-in chokes, or what are you using there? Look, I like screw-in chokes uh, because there are occasions when there is some technical advantages to using a slightly tighter choke or a slightly more open choke, depending on what altitude, first of all, you're shooting at, because a lot of the events aren't at sea level. The higher up you go, it will affect your choke slightly. Uh, so that is something that fixed choke guns are you have a bit of a disadvantage with. And if the clays are really hard to break, there is an advantage of using a, a slightly more tighter choke so you can hit them with more pellets, but only slightly. I'm not saying you vary it enormously, but that's the preference I have for variable choke guns. Sounds good. So how many uh, shotguns do you currently own or do you take you know, with you on competitions? Do you sort of you know, just have one particular one or you've got like 20 lying around? What's the... So look, I've got a favourite, uh, no doubt, and I'm just about to swap over to Beretta's latest model one. Um, they've released a new model that is available to the public in December this year, and I'm about to swap to a prototype in September. So I'm very keen to get my hands on that. I'm going to fly over to Italy in a few weeks' time and get the stock made for that particular gun, and I plan on using that in competitions from mid-September onwards. But no two guns are the same. I've never found two that are exactly identical, and as strange as that may seem to a lot of people, and a lot of hunters would not, never pick up the difference between some of our guns but you know you're talking one percent can separate you 10 places in a field so you need to have them exactly right and i can pick the difference between every one of my guns i always have two that i've got that i could change to i've, I've i always like to have two that are very close but i'll always have one that's more of a favorite than another how much does that make a difference like um can you pick up just a regular, you know, uh, like with it's obviously Beretta's sponsor, you're like a shotgun and be able to shoot that or is it more like you have to get that stock, you know, specifically for your needs? Yeah, look, if I picked up Michael Diamond's shotgun and shot it or he picked up mine, I mean, we're both going to hit a lot of targets, but you're not going to hit the same. You're not going to hit enough to put you into an Olympic final with someone else's gun because, you know, you're going to have to shoot a very high percentage. So... Yeah, I mean, if you're just going out there to shoot practice, you're still probably going to shoot AAA-grade scores, but not enough to win you an Olympic or World Championship event. Because these guns, 
tens and tens of thousands of rounds go down the barrel. You know, you change your body weight a couple of kilograms and the gun all of a sudden starts to feel a little bit different, so you need to alter it. Um, and, and it's hard. Uh, you get used to something, but then your body changes or whatever, and you've got to get used to something else again. So you're talking small differences, uh, the difference between winning a gold medal and watching the final from the grandstand. Yeah, I can also imagine how, I mean, probably, I'm not sure they're much different these days, but the the shotguns, again, you were shooting the late 80s or 90s, comparing as to what you just said now, getting a getting a prototype in 2011. Look, if I showed you the prototype of the gun I'm getting now, and then I showed you the gun that I took to the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, you wouldn't think they were made in the same century. They are so different now, it's incredible. Whereas a basic hunting or field gun hasn't probably changed in... 60 years, but changes in the height of the ribs now that they shoot above the barrel. You know, years ago I shot a, a gun that was only a 6mm rib. Well, the new gun I'm about to start with has got a 40mm rib. And you look at that gun and you think, oh God, I'd never hit anything with that. But of course now, if I went back to a 6mm rib, I'd think I'd hit nothing. So it's just changed so much. And you look at the guns and you think they're this sort of space age looking shotguns now. They're nothing like the traditional uh, prototype of so not, not not prototype that's the wrong word the traditional type of setup of what a gun would be the prototypes that we're using now though are they're space age designs but they're designed to get a score they're not designed to look good and I, I'm not suggesting the new age guns look anything good anything like what the old ones look like but they're more practical for trying to shoot a score yeah is there any uh, shotguns you've had now that you've had for years that are you know personal favourites either even for your hunting or that you just had for a long time. Look, the three guns that I really won my first world championship with, my first Olympic medal, and then my first World Cup final gold medal. They were three different types of SO5 Beretta shotguns, and they both. Well, they all, all three had fired probably 100,000-odd rounds through it, and that that had a fair workout. And Beretta, as a, as a gesture for me, took all those guns back last year and completely rebuilt them, and they're like brand-new guns. They're the only guns that I've ever decided that I wanted to keep as heirlooms, and I'll keep those three guns, and I'll pass them on to my kids when they get a bit older. But all the other guns, I've never sold a gun that I've used really in a competition, um, not a handful maybe, but, and I would have had probably 50 or 60 different shotguns in my career, but most of them um, I see around the place still, a lot of them I use in my corporate shooting day events, come along and shoot corporately with me, get a chance to use guns that you know had won medals in world events around the world, so they get a bit of a thrill out of that too, I guess. Absolutely. So, I mean, getting into the different aspect, uh, you know, of the whole, I guess, hunting and shooting game with laws. How do you, how do you see the laws today? I mean, obviously, um, you know, post nineteen ninety six and the the semi autos and that. What's your, what's your current view on that? Oh, I was stupid. I mean, the, but it's it's sad that I handed in two semi automatics in nineteen ninety six, and then you know, seriously, it didn't achieve anything. We we certainly all know that that was a political event uh, that was nothing to do with making Australia safer. And it was sad to see a lot of people hand in family heirlooms, like I've just mentioned. A lot of people handed in semi-automatic shotguns that had been handed down from generation to generation. And 
Yeah, uh, yeah. I I think that's been a terrible thing in Australia's shooting history. That not suggesting that Port Arthur wasn't a sad thing either, but it was a political event that led to the gun legislation that ultimately didn't really make any difference for the safety of you or your neighbour. And, you know, it's just one of those things that I guess you've had to move on from. We've had to live with the laws. And I think slowly they're trying, the the police in each state are trying to make it easier for people to, that have got a legitimate reason to own and store a shotgun at their house, they're trying to make it easier for them. With the exception of Western Australia, I think Western Australia is still a bit draconian. I still think, you know, when I go there in a couple of weeks' time for a competition, I still have to uh, apply for a permit to take my shotgun into that state to compete in a clay target event, which I find living in Australia, I find that really hard. I I don't think that achieves anything. But you've got to work with them. I mean, you can sit here and argue with them at customs or the firearms registry or your life. They, They make the laws and I've got to work with them. But... Travelling around the world, Australia is sincerely one of the harder places to bring a firearm into. Whether that's good or bad is debatable, but it is hard. There's a fair bit of paperwork to do, and you know, it's. I guess I do it every couple of weeks of my life, and I, I just deal with it. And it's it does annoy me at times, though. Is there any positive changes that you'd like to see? That I mean, that you'd like to see happen, say, for your family as your children grow up, etc.? Well, I would have loved to have seen a national firearms legislation. If that's what John Howard wanted in 96, if that's what his ultimate aim was, he didn't succeed. Because it isn't right. It isn't the same in every state. Uh, I'd love to see... I'd love to see more school children educated on how to use firearms. So I think there's no doubt that everyone's kids eventually are going to come across a firearm in their life. And I've got no doubt saying kids that are educated how to handle that gun with a lot of respect aren't going to be the ones that actually commit a firearms offence or a firearm breach of the safety of the firearm. If they know what they're doing with it, they they will show it the respect and they'll treat it that way. But kids that have been kept away from it, like taboo, and then when they finally get one, they're, they're big, a bigger danger than anyone else. And that's what I'd like to see. I grew up through the schoolboy and schoolgirl system where we actually used firearms as part of our PE program. And nobody that I went to school with, I would say it uncategorically, nobody that I grew up with has ever committed a firearms offence. Yeah, that's the thing I find um, a lot of people, um, you know, just even in forums that I frequent, stuff like that, are always reporting on criminal behaviour. But it's like, well, I don't like to give that even any... Uh, even look at it or even post that type of thing sometimes because, you know, we're not criminals, we're just sporting shooters that enjoy the sport and I see a criminal as, as someone totally unrelated to me and it's it's really, uh, it's nothing to do with me. I mean, obviously, it's, you know, as what happened just recently, I think about in Oslo where people were um, unfortunately obviously gunned down, uh, that's... Uh, we're not we're not criminals, so I'm not sure why we're, you know, sometimes put in that or we're defending ourselves against that. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't try and defend um, myself again. I don't even associate myself with um, the idiot down at Port Arthur or the guy in Oslo. You know, that is exactly. a very tragic 
set of circumstances. But to try and correlate my sport or uh, a hunter that's going duck shooting with some maniac that's running around gunning down people, you know, I do take that as an offensive um, statement. And, you know, I don't, even, I don't even try and debate it with those the, the anti-gun lobby on that issue anymore because I think we've proved that there are so many law-abiding firearm owners in Australia that we don't have to defend ourselves against stupid acts like that. No. Totally agree, mate, 100%. I mean, some of these, you know, a lot of people always trying to, you know, we don't want to turn out like America, they keep saying. But, I mean, uh, you know, other countries like the England, like I'm actually coming up with an interview with a guy, uh, a game chef, Mark Yorkris, in a few in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, they've still got semi-autos, as do New Zealand, and they don't have half the, you know, the issues as well. So, But they never seem to mention those statistics, do they, I guess? So. Yeah, look, it's you can throw all types of statistics around to prove anything, I guess and you know and I had this conversation with someone at the ABC radio only a couple of days ago if that guy in Oslo had have tried that in Texas in the United States well he might have killed a couple of people before he was shot down himself because you do that in Texas and they're going to shoot you because they have got the right to bear a firearm. Well, I'm not suggesting that we want that in Australia, but that's a, another ridiculous argument I can throw for someone that says that. You know, you, well, you know, that, that's probably not what I want to see in Australia either, but it's just an argument you can throw at somebody. But I, I, um, I really don't want to debate that issue with them, that's for sure. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, let's get on to a little a more positive note, I'd say. Uh, what would you say your most rewarding competition win to date has been? Uh, probably probably the 1998 World Teams competition. Um, we'd won a lot of individual events, Michael Diamond and myself, I guess, going in, uh, in and after the 96 Olympics. But Australia had never been ranked number one in the world as a country until 1998 and in 98 for the first time ever Australia was the number one shooting country in the world in clay target shooting in my event and I I think that was a significant achievement. Australia doesn't really come from a historical past of being great at shooting. We've had great individuals but never a country that you would say is going to be the number one team. And when we won that, and then the following year in Finland we won it again, people are all of a sudden saying, hang on a minute, what are they doing differently down in Australia? And we had people then start to come to Australia to train with us because they thought we were doing something different. <laughs> I don't know if we were, but we just had so many people getting involved in the sport and we had such a great depth from 96 to 2000 that we could put teams of people together that then become world champions and I look back you know the the Olympics is an individual achievement for sure that was an individual achievement for me but the 98 teams event, I thought that really signified Australia had arrived and that really has got people thinking what are they doing? And you know, I, I, there was a lot of personal pride in that. I can, ima I can imagine it would have been. So uh, with your wife, Lauren, did you meet her on the shooting circuit or...? Yeah, Lauren was shooting for the United States when I met her in um, 1998 or 99, I guess it was. She was in the US skeet team and yeah, I thought that she should be shooting for Australia. So I kidnapped her and brought her <laughs> home. <laughs> the US coach never spoke to me again, I don't think, after that because she was an up-and-coming shooter in the team. And 
obviously they had plans for her to shoot for the Olympics. And when she finally went to the 2004 Olympics, um, she finished fourth. She just finished out the medals, but in fifth and sixth position at that Olympics were two Americans. So I did see the irony in all of that. So, um, you know, it's been great to travel around the world with Lauren because she knows exactly what I go through as a competitor and I know what she goes through. So on the morning of competition, I steer and she declares of me on the morning of mine. And it's good to be with someone that knows exactly what's going to be involved. I can imagine it's hard to find a, even as a me as a young thirty-year-old guy to find a woman that sort of you know can sometimes be supportive. So it's always a good thing. <laughs> Go to the states, mate. You'll find plenty of them there. Uh, I've got, as I always tell my friends, I've got two two of my best friends in Dallas, Texas, well just outside, and uh, one down in Waco, and been hunting there myself. And fantastic is the word, I guess. So. But, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. So who who inspires Russell Mark when you were growing up? You know, was it you know was it a competition shooter or? Uh, look, I, I come from a very big sporting family. Not just in shooting, my mother was a champion table player, believe it or not, and a champion golfer. So I was always competitive in my household. So if you did something, you always had to do it okay. So. I guess a lot of my inspirations come from my mother, who wasn't a shooter. She probably, I don't think I ever saw a fire again in her life, but she was a very competitive sports person, and um, she was instrumental in making sure that if I was to take up shooting as a sport, and I didn't take it up seriously. I never competed for Australia ever as a junior until virtually I'd finished university, but I played a lot of other sport when I was growing up, and... I think she installed the right values in me, so you know, shooting was just something else that I did. And when I finally took it up, I had a great sporting background behind me from cricket and football and tennis and other sports. And yep. I think she provided the inspiration to just do your best at it. And I was lucky that my best was good enough to take me all the way to the very top. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's say um, you've got a clay target shooter that's you know pretty good, but wants to take that say next step you know, to become maybe a competition shooter, what sort of advice would you give or what would, where would they start? Look, you've got to learn how to lose in our sport before you can understand how to win. And you're going to lose a lot of events before you finally work out how to win them. And shooting clay targets, I mentioned before an off-the-cuff comment that you could teach a gorilla to shoot them or a chimpanzee. And it's not that hard to hit one, but it's harder to hit two in a row. And then it's harder to hit three in a row in a competition and so... But, you're going to go and lose a lot of events along the way. So you, you need to understand that it's not a game of perfection. There are days when it's just not going to go your way, but accept that, cop it on the chin, and then front up again at the next event. But the last thing you want to do is be involved with a group of people that are very negative and want to complain about everything and the targets are too hard or the selection policies not helping them make the team. Those type of people I found in your life, not just in your sporting life, but in your personal life, you need to get rid of them. And if you surround yourself with positive people, eventually you'll get better yourself. And I was lucky enough in my shooting career to be lumped with Michael Diamond very early, just when he was a young guy. But he was such a positive, inspirational person to travel around the world with. I think we fed off each other for a long while. And when we and when I won my first gold medal at a World Cup in '91, Michael also won his first medal. He won a bronze medal in that event 
in Los Angeles and we looked at each other all of a sudden and we thought, yeah, maybe we are good enough to win these events. And from that moment on, we just never looked back. We went on and then won a heap of events leading into the 96 Olympics where we ultimately both made our dreams and aspirations of fruition. But it was because of Michael and his positive attitude that I achieved a lot of my success. And I often tell young people that are getting into the sport, it's very, very hard to soar with eagles while you hang out with turkeys. And you need to get rid of the turkeys <laughs> and just to hang around the eagles. And if you, I was lucky, I found an eagle in Michael Diamond at a very early age. But it's the same advice I'd give to the next crop coming through now get rid of the people of the whinges and the moaners and the people that sulk and you know get rid of them and hang out with people that are striving to be better and are willing to put the hard work in and I had no one better than Michael Diamond to show me the way there and you know Mick's about eight years younger than me but he taught me a lot yeah no I mean I like your words of wisdom there so I don't mean to make a cheesy pun these days but do you still see Michael Diamond around the traps or yeah, look, it's strange. I mean, I was in Slovenia last week at a competition and I never saw him once. I never got to speak to him face-to-face. The only conversations that we had were by a text message on the phone. Um, his event is a different event than mine and his event is normally the last event or the first event of the program and mine is vice versa. So we tend to spend as little amount of time as possible away from home so I time my arrival at the event to perfection and he does it with his and it tends to be we miss each other now um, so I don't see anywhere near the amount of Michael Diamond as I once did because I don't shoot in the same events as him anymore which is pretty sad because you know as I say he was a person that I learned an awful lot from but um, he's still going strong he'll be at the London Olympics definitely and I've dare say he's a chance to win another one he's not finished yet by a long way yeah and no, hopefully we get to see as I said the next one both of you guys there so speaking uh would there like as you said about people before in the industry would there be anything you'd change in say the the clay shooting industry to make it either better for shooters or look i, I think the gun legislation made it very hard for us after 96 because it become a bit of a barrier to enter into the sport but not a barrier totally that will stop new people but it's not prohibitive if you haven't got a violent criminal past you can go and get a shooter's license you're not going to struggle with the fact that the police are going to say no but they've made it harder they've made it harder in a lot of ways but we as shooters need to work with those laws and as members of shooting clubs we need to make it user friendly for people to come along for the first time and show them how to shoot, show them how to get their shooters license, show them what they need to do to stay in the sport. Whereas 50 years ago, we didn't have to do any of that. You know, if you didn't like it, you just didn't come back next week. But if you did come back next week, you didn't have a firearms license even. You know, you didn't. You could store your gun in the boot of your car. You know, these days you can't do that. So if we explain to people what is required, but if we help them do that, you'll get the same amount of people involved in the sport. But we just have to be very proactive these days in understanding that People can be confused when they come to a shooting range. We need to have a smiling face for someone that comes to the range for the first time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know they changed that, I think, a few years back where, you know, people can go try it now. They don't have to have a license, you know, see if they enjoy it. And then if they do, you know, hopefully, which they would, 
you know, start that process to get a license. So I think that's something, you know, some positive change in legislation they've had over the last couple of years well, as well. Yeah, I mean, and, and the Shooters Party in New South Wales have done a fantastic job into introducing that because New South Wales was just as draconian, I believe, as what Western Australia was. Um, and New South Wales had the most shooters, but now they have changed that law now and it... It isn't an excuse for us now to say, okay, that's why our membership at our clubs in New South Wales are dying. We just have to work with them, and it can be done. And uh, I'm sure that uh, people now that the legislation has been changed can actually do that. Yeah, no, all right. So sort of to finish off, can you tell us maybe, say, a story that you, say, remember, say, stood out in your life, so whether it was a shooting accomplishment, hunting story, or just anything in particular? Oh, look, I, I guess I've had so many different things that have presented themselves to me from from winning that gold medal. And uh, and it's fabulous the amount of different opportunities that have presented themselves. But I guess the story probably that I'm more famous for than anything was to get a job coaching the world's richest man, the Sultan of Brunei, over in Brunei not long after the 96 Olympics. And not many people get a phone call from the world's richest man asking him to go over to his country and teach his little brother how to shoot clay targets. But I can honestly say I've had that phone call. You know, and it's... Brunei was an amazing place to go to. And it was um, a staggering shooting range that he built for his little brother, Prince Sufri, over there. And he it's a culture that Brunei, you wouldn't think there'd, there would be any sort of base of shooters over there. And to get a phone call one day and say, come to Brunei for a few weeks and we'll pick up the bill and throw a few dollars at you to teach, um, teach us how to shoot clay targets and he'd already built the best shooting range in the world there before he'd really had any experience at all in the sport. I thought it was an amazing thing for a guy that you know grew up in Ballarat playing football or cricket. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was sort of strange to finally go and do that. But uh, yeah, that's something that will always stand out in my mind as something that uh, was only there because it won an Olympic gold medal. Yeah, so did he actually shoot any good when you went over there or when you taught him? I could still be with him now, to be honest, Jason. He probably was never going to get much good. He had no <laughs> handle-like coordination. He didn't have much going for him, but he was a lovely guy. But he had the best shooting range in the world. I was happy to go and have a look at it. He, um, the... he, he decided polo was more his style, and it took him a little while to work that out, that he may not get to the Olympics, but he finally <laughs> did work it out. <laughs> so it was one of those cases, all the gear but no idea. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly the way to describe it. All right, mate. To, to finish off, you know, if people wanted to, you know, get in contact with Russell Mark, you know, perhaps, you know, you have a website or how they can contact you if they want to do some corporate shooting days, just give us a, a round out to finish off of how you can, how they can go about it. Well, I've got two easy ways to contact me through my corporate days. I, um, my phone number is 1300 Shootings. So that's a really simple one. And my website for our corporate days, which we, that's largely what we're doing these days, it's um, www.goshooting.com.au. That's a pretty simple one as well. But the corporate shooting side of my life is taking up a lot of it now. And my wife, Lauren, who runs the business, I take credit for it, but she really does do the, the business end of things. I'm very proud to say I've introduced thousands of new shooters into the sport simply through corporate shooting and um, you know whether they're bucks parties or the major banks of financial institutions in Australia I've had a chance to introduce an awful lot of people that never would have ever thought of coming along and firing a firearm 
and I'm glad to say that I've not had one person ever leave a shooting range after we've had them that's had the same feeling towards the sport and the same negative feeling that they may have had when they arrived. It's only ever been positive. So that's the sort of thing I think a lot of clubs need to take on board, that introduce new people. Once they hit something with their firearm, they change their opinion of the sport. And I'm very proud to say I've changed a lot of people's opinions of our sport. Fantastic. Do you um, run your shooting days? Do you travel or do you run them out of a certain club? Or No, we do it Australia-wide, Jason. There's pretty much... Um, there's no place in Australia I haven't conducted no capital city, that's for sure. But obviously my home club of Werribee and the club at Lilydale here in Melbourne are the two clubs that I use here. But there are clubs right through Sydney, Brisbane. Um, I've done a lot of days now on the Gold Coast, a bear club. And, you know, it, it just, it, it's broadening each month. Uh, I'm finding different places to do it. And it's just more people want to try it. And, uh, it is a good sport to try. If you've never tried it, obviously uh, get people along. And once they hit a clay target, they're addicted. And so many of them come back and join. You know, they're now members of sporting shooters associations, the Australian Clay Target Association, the Field and Game Federations. But they've started at a corporate event. And that's great to run into those people again. All right, Russell, man, that was fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. I know a lot of people uh, have submitted questions that I've actually asked you uh, tonight. Thanks for coming on. I know your time's important, and uh, it's always good to get people on that are, you know, number one, knowledgeable, but also have a passion, you know, for, you know, firearms and getting the word out there and, you know, that we're not some sort of, you know, redneck breed and, you know, we're just sporting shooters. We like to have fun and like to enjoy our sport, and it's always good to have someone of, you know, your, you know, professional and uh, caliber also and your experience at Olympic level to come on and spend time to chat with me tonight so thanks for coming on mate really appreciate it it's been a great pleasure Jason you've done a very good job uh, any time mate you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast brought to you by AussieUsedGuns.com.au the premier classifieds of new and used firearm sales thanks for listening see you next time